build the best product. I've been involved in the Patagonia field testing program for a little over 20 years right now. For silent sports done in nature. That's the feeling. That's the feeling that I fell in love with with climbing. Cause no unnecessary harm. Of organic cotton and recycled polyester to recycling the clothing to measuring our carbon footprint. Inspire and implement solutions to the environmental crisis. To give some love back to this river that doesn't have any. It's not getting any love. See what drives us at Patagonia.com. With additional support from Kuat Racks and New Belgium Brewing. I, I seem to have this propensity to get lost no matter what I'm doing. I've been benighted most of my life, and, and like not in the royalty sense either. But uh, yeah, I've been stuck in the dark so many times. I, I literally couldn't count it. I mean, it's kind of become like my mo. So maybe I'm not the, the right person to give advice on how to avoid getting stuck in the dark. You may remember Kelly Cordes, writer, pugilist, and alpinist. He is the purveyor of climbing massive peaks, often his first ascents with stupidly light gear, an alpinism subgenre known simply as disaster style. For Kelly, nights spent out with few supplies are kind of part of the norm. But where does his perverse ability to endure come from? That willingness to face the fact that he's going to be spending the night out. There must be some sort of gateway or beginning to how this came about. I remember when I first started climbing, I was so psyched, just so enthusiastic all the time. That uh, and, and I was married back then, and and my my wife, well, not my ex-wife, um, was always just like she was like, no, if you're going climbing with Kelly, bring a headlamp. And I'd be like, no, no, we don't need a headlamp. There's no way we're not gonna finish by dark. No way. After a while, I tend to start bringing a headlamp all the time. Curiously though, it it hasn't saved off the epics. As you reduce the variables, you start to, you know, it starts to pinpoint to like a, a certain thing that might be the problem. It's actually not the headlamp that's the problem, you know. My friend Rolo and I talk of, about this term a lot, this, this fantasy. It's not the same as like total faith. It's imagination. It's like thinking that maybe, maybe I can do this. And if I sat down and thought about it rationally, maybe I don't have much business being on this. But but this is just a little bit outside my comfort zone. Like, maybe I can pull this off. And all climbers, or at least all alpinists, are, are dreamers. I mean, you, you have to be. Because you, it's pretty cool to, to stand beneath something and, and kind of like swallow a lump in your throat and be like, okay, wow, that's what I've been talking about. I think I can do this. And then being like, well, you know what? If it doesn't work out, I know how to get myself out of this mess. The ironic thing about all that is that the more you do it, the better prepared you are to deal with it the next time that it happens. But each time you do that, each time you push the boat out further, uh, you know, the more likely it is that that might be your last time. I still get scared, and then I get this calm once nightfall finally hits, and it's definitive, like, yes, we are stuck out. I'm cool with it. The first night you spend out without sleeping bags, it sucks, but then, yeah, you, you get a pretty cool sunrise, and then you get back down, and 
you know, you're like, well, you know what, we, we, we survived that. You know, it wasn't that bad. There's a lot of ways to deal with it. I mean, you can do jumping jacks, you can do isometrics, you know, wander around lost like if you're walking off of something. <laughs> you can, like, spoon together, you know, you can do all kinds of things to stay warm until sunrise. Great stories often contain these five words, and then it got dark. But how do you go from alpine starts and planned summits to watching the stars dot the sky? Getting benighted, it can happen for a few different reasons. One, unforeseen circumstances. That happens to us all. Two, complete denial of reality. Or three, getting too comfortable in the dark. Today we present Benighted, three stories about being out long after the sun has set. It's going to get cold, there's going to be some wind, and I bet at some point you're not sure if the sun is ever going to rise. I'm Fitzka Hall, and you're listening to The Dirtbag Diaries. In 1992, Jay Puckhaber was benighted by unforeseen circumstances. He convinced his six friends to drive 24 hours straight from Atlanta to Taos for a post-semester road trip. Jay had climbed Wheeler Peak, New Mexico's highest point, a few times while working in the surrounding area for a few summers. A couple of the guys are from Florida. They've never seen anything but, you know, palm trees their whole life. They've never seen snow. You know, I mean, so these are guys that, you know, I wanted to introduce to the mountains. It wasn't even adventurous, really, for me. It was just me taking my friends to do something I'd already done, you know. It was, uh, it was supposed to be an easy trip. They found a bit of snow at the trailhead and more above the first lake. It wasn't this big, grassy slope to get up to the ridgeline like I'd done before. It was, uh, it was a snow slope. But everyone was game to keep going. They quickly gave some instructions for hiking through the snow. And then when we got to the top of the snow slope, um, stood on the ridge, and the, and the wind just got got crazy. We kind of had a little huddle behind the rocks and said, hey, you know, are you guys still up for this? Is this still fun? Or do we need to turn around? But uh, everybody said, no, let's go. With the wind ripping over the ridge, hiking to the summit wasn't easy. But above treeline, the summit didn't seem that far. They were motivated to top it out. Only when they didn't make it to the top did they realize how much wind had slowed them down. Instead of retracing their path, they dropped off the ridge towards Horseshoe Lake to get around out of the wind. And that's when I really felt like, you know, something wasn't right with me because we were going downhill. It was supposed to start getting easier. And all of a sudden I was breathing harder like I was going uphill. You know, I don't want to call their attention to it yet. Part of it's just my ego, I guess. And part of it is, you know, I'm the one that's supposed to be responsible for them. So I just want to push on 100 yards probably from Horseshoe Lake. I, I fell down right there on the trail. And, you know, my friends, they rallied a little bit. You know, they, they grabbed my pack. Two of them grabbed me up, you know, by either arm and you know, to walk me down to the lake to find somewhere a little more sheltered to sit. Two guys were just setting up their camp near the lake and came over to see what was up. It was getting late, and the group quickly came up with a plan. I don't think I've ever carried an extra sleeping bag on a day hike in my entire life except on that trip. And so what we decided was I would stay there with those guys, with the guys from Boston, and my friends would hike back down to the car, and in the morning they would come back and get me, and hopefully I'd be feeling better. I think they freaked out a little bit. You know, they were talking constantly about what they thought was going on with me up at the up at the campsite, and I think they really talked themselves into the idea that I was sicker than I was. And apparently, they went to uh, the uh, the fire station in in Red River and just banged on the door until somebody came. 
7 the next morning, Jay woke up to voices. He looked outside of the tent, expecting to see his friends. And it's not my friends, you know, it's, uh, it's these other guys. And so I stick my head back in the tent, you know, and figure, well, it's just some other hikers. And it turns out it's a search and rescue team. <laughs> I, felt, I, felt, I was feeling pretty good by the morning because I was, I was feeling better. Everything was working out. And then these guys show up, and that's when I started to get embarrassed. One of the star team members checks Jay's oxygen level and blood pressure. He seemed fine. And Jay felt fine. He was ready to hike out. So Jay packed up his gear. And he goes over to the, you know, with his radio to t radio down and tell everybody what's going on. And I found out that one of the things he was doing was canceling this helicopter that was waiting to come get me. He's still talking and he walks over the ridge to get a little better reception. He comes back and says, uh, hey, um, we canceled this helicopter, but, um, uh, but the Air Force was listening in and they want to they, they want to fly. And I was like, well, what does that mean? You know, they said, well, I think they want to come up here and get you. You know, I was in, I was still embarrassed at this point. I don't know how many people out there, you know, working to come get me and I'm fine. I, at that point, I was just saying yes to anything they asked of me. And then he comes back and he says, all right, they're coming to get you. But the only way this makes sense is if this is a real emergency. And I'm, I'm like, well, it's not a real emergency. I mean, I'm fine. And he says, yeah, but, um, you know, so he's, he sticks a catheter in my arm. He puts oxygen tubes in my nose and, uh, and then he just, and he never hooks any of it up. You know, he just sticks it in there. About an hour later, this big Black Hawk helicopter comes flying up from the valley. And um, man, that's when I felt really small. I felt like, you know what, I've caused a big issue here. Medics strapped Jay onto a gurney into the stripped-down Blackhawk. As they flew towards Taos, Jay got one more view of Wheeler Peak. This didn't look like a peak that I had day hiked the two years you know, prior. This is, a, this is a totally different mountain, the way it looked. By this point, word had made it to Jay's friends that he was en route to the hospital in Taos. They rushed in, frantic to see what had happened to their friend. They looked like they were coming in expecting to find a dead guy. You know, you could see the relief. They're, they're, they, they just totally relaxed when they saw me just sitting there. And at that point, it was all okay. Jay found out later that it was the combination of heavy exertion, elevation, and cold air that had been the perfect recipe for kicking off an asthma attack, something he hadn't had since being a kid. And it hasn't ever happened since. Jay returned to Wheeler Peak two years later. And in the summit register, he wrote, Five times up, four times down, you do the math. Okay, reason number two for finding yourself benighted. Complete denial of reality. Just north of Anchorage, the Twin Peaks rise 5,600 feet from sea level. For years, Ryan Peterson, and Josh Foreman had looked up at the peaks as they headed off to other climbing destinations around Anchorage. The beauty of their stark 2,000-foot faces was undeniable. There was a popular hike up the south side, but Ryan couldn't find any reported winter ascents of the north faces. Armed with experience climbing cold, icy, mixed rock and harder routes, they decided it was time to climb the face they'd been staring at for years. The approach to the base was pretty burly. It was like three-plus hours. And we, because we wanted to do this in winter, I think it was December when we actually did it, you're dealing with about six and a half hours of daylight. You know, we were in that stage when we had more balls than cents and uh, 
ultimately we were screwed from the get-go. They started off right, hiking at 3.30 in the morning, climbing by daylight. They made it up the steep, snowy gully through some short technical bits. Got to the start of the really hard stuff and we were feeling good and we looked at our watch and we're like, oh crap, it's like noon. We have about three and a half hours of daylight left and two thirds of the climb to go. And at that point we should have been like, this is dumb, let's bail, come back when we're you know, ready to do it in a, as a multi-day. But of course we didn't. We kept going and we kept going and it got hard and it was just slow going. And then, you know, in the back of your mind, when you get in these situations of potential benightment, you're just so nervous. You're like, I do not want this to turn into an epic. It's just a horrible feeling. But then when darkness actually falls, it's ironically this great relief. Now, instead of having only you know, minutes or hours, I have an infinite amount of time available available to me. I'm stuck here all night, and it's kind of this nice weight is lifted from your shoulders, and I go, okay, well, uh, I guess it's time to just settle in and get get comfy with your headlamp. So night fell, and they kept climbing. At midnight, with 10 hours still to go before sunrise, Ryan's ice axe went through a slab of snow into open space. His adult brain didn't understand what was happening. So he kept moving his ice axe around, making the hole bigger. And there in front of me, this kind of perfect little two-person-sized cave in the side of this 80-degree face opened up. And so I kind of climbed in there, and I set an anchor and pulled Josh up into it. Now we're sitting down in this little tiny cave. And we both just looked at each other and we're kind of like, yep, this is, it. This is where we're going to be until it gets light. Josh had his cell phone and they had perfect reception. Given that it was 2013 years ago, that's kind of amazing. But they called Josh's girlfriend to let them know their situation. There's a kind of type of significant other who gets dragged to Alaska by their Alaskan boyfriend or girlfriend. And they get up here and they realize it's not really what they thought it would be, especially in the winter when it's just cold as hell and dark as hell. And this girl was kind of in that category. Josh was already kind of on thin ice for having spent too much time climbing and screwing around in the mountains. And he was not looking forward to calling her to say that he wasn't going to be home. So he calls her up. He's like, hey, baby, uh, so me and Ryan are on this route. It's, we're totally safe. Everything's fine. But we're, we're, we got delayed. We got benighted. And now we're stuck. But I just want to let you know. She's going back and forth trying to figure out the situation. Well, where are you? We're in a cave. Well, is it cold? Yeah, it's cold, but it's not death. Do you have sleeping bags? No. Do you have water? No. But you know, trust us, we're fine. The girlfriend calls Ryan's mom and then calls back. My mom told her pretty much exactly what I expected she would have, which was just like, you know, oh, those boys, you know, if they're, if they're dumb enough to get themselves into that situation, then, and they can't get out, then, 
you know, she had kind of this Darwinist approach to it. They'll either make it out or they won't. Either way, they're fine if they say they're fine. The girlfriend still wasn't convinced. Josh hangs up. I'm like, what's up? What's up? And he goes, you know, she, she, she goes, why don't you guys just come home? I don't understand. Why don't, I mean, why don't you just come home? What are you doing? As if we were just fooling around and, and having such a good time that we decided to stay out a little later. If only it were that simple. When you're in that situation, you're kind of in survival mode. It's kind of like you just lock into the only stuff that matters, which in that instance is staying warm and safe. We were... 20, 21, something like that. You don't think six and a half hours is not enough time to climb to do a long first ascent. It doesn't even cross your mind. You just, you just go do it. But I suppose it's experiences exactly like that, that, that learn you. And that's, I guess, where they have their value. You know, the sun came up in the morning, we got out, we finished the route, and I'll never forget coming up over this knife edge ridge, and it's north facing, so you poke over and you're looking south, southeast, and this kind of warm golden sun just blasts you in the face, and it was so beautiful. In every story of being benighted, darkness falls. Mentally, that can be the hardest part. Childlike fear that bubbles up in us. The striver that wants to deny the inevitable. But can you become too comfortable in the dark? When I get stuck in the dark, uh, usually I make it back by like, I don't know, if not midnight, then at least like by the next morning when you'd normally wake up. I definitely had had plenty of time spent out uh, in the mountains. Also, a fair number of times where we didn't plan to spend the night out, but God, that usually comes from such a good place. It like comes from love, you know, like you're so excited about what you're doing and you're in the most beautiful place. And you're just like, man, we can't go down. We're almost to the top. We got to keep going. And then you just deal with the consequences and and usually, yeah, okay, you got to do a couple of repels and hike out a little bit and, and get back down and, you know, home in time for margaritas and dinner, you know. But uh, <laughs> there's plenty of times where it's been a lot more than that. And some of those times I can look back and, look back and laugh, laugh at, but uh, many of them I, I kind of look back and I'm like, oh, boy, it, it pushed a little too close that time. You said that each time that you've been benighted, you were better prepared for it. But you're also pushing towards the edge of, of maybe not coming back. You know, uh, has, there, has there been a moment when you've been out there that you thought this is maybe the last time? It's actually a timely question because um, the, you know, I had never actually had that thought, this might be my last. 
my last go. And I've been way more strung out before, except for this last trip. Kelly and Craig Scariot had climbed the Afana CF Ridge on Fitzroy, a nearly 5,000-foot route. The climb had gone well, but sleep had been at a minimum. And then they started to descend the other side in the dark. And, and I think I just got complacent, you know? I'm like, ah, whatever, it's the standard descent route, like, no big deal. And uh, it, was really, it was a really bad choice. And, uh, you know, we had Bibby gear, so you know, we should have just bibbied on the summit and waited for daylight. But uh, I just got impatient, I guess. Funny how, like, the, the simplest mistakes can sometimes kind of compound things and become a really big deal. I did this one, like, free-hanging rappel, you know, 60 meters down. There were no cracks, no anchors, and it dropped off into into overhangs where my, my headlamp beam just disappeared and these swirling, misty clouds are, like, rising up. It was the eeriest thing I've ever seen. And, uh, you know, I was just like, wow, you know, we, we don't have a way out of this. And we spent a, a horrifying night out, and, like, the only thing to do was just, like, sit on, like, tiny butt-sized ledges and just shiver and wait for, wait for daylight and then hope that we could find a way out. You know, I, wa- I wasn't, like, I wasn't freaking out or anything, you know? I wasn't, you know, I was a little bit sad. You know, I wasn't going to, like, go see my girlfriend again. My sister, who I love so much. Yeah, all these things, and I was just like, wow. This is it, huh? There have been plenty of other times where afterward, I like, had these sobering moments of reflection where, where I was like, whoa, that was like way too close. This time was the first time that it was in the moment that I, that I had this cognizant realization that like, wow, man, this is probably it, you know? The irony of the moment was not lost on Kelly. He had been thinking about slowing down. After years of climbing injury-free, a spinal reconstructed, followed by a severely torn shoulder, followed by a shattered leg, I put him under the knife many times. He's become the rehab king. Life changes, right? I mean, like, my body's beat to hell now. I think that has had a cascading effect because I'm, I'm in pain um, most of the time now, and it makes it harder to enjoy things, and then that affects my psychological state. I, I used to be so psyched that was like my benchmark you know and uh and now and now it's a lot harder to be that psyched and so in the past also i think um that the ethics i've had in the past we usually were pretty engrossed in the moment of doing things to where uh the mental energy that the psychic energy was high enough that even in the grim times we were just focused on the task at hand i don't think i've ever actually had those few hours of contemplation before. I don't know. Then again, you know, you get back out and then like, ah, shit, you know, I'm just being a wimp. I've talked to other people who've been lost in that area on Fitzroy and they haven't reacted nearly as badly, if you will, as I have. That's all right. That's part of life. Everything changes, you know. You know, I'm a, I'm a lifetime climber for sure. It's just that my body changed quicker than my mind did.
Thanks to Kelly, Ryan, and Jay for the stories today. And with the road trip season upon us, we hope you're sharing your benighted stories when you're around the next campfire. Music today by Maps and Atlases, The Savi Fav, Broken Social Scene, The Black Angels, This Will Destroy You, and Menomina. We'll post the links to the bands on our website. Music provided by Mevio's Music Alley. Check it out at music.mevio.com. Support for the diaries comes from, well, you. Thanks to the folks who have stepped up and pledged to keep the diaries growing. Want to find out how you can too? Listen to the Pledge podcast or click on the Pledge button on our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. The diaries wouldn't be possible without the support of the good people at Patagonia. Their Common Waters campaign is about balancing human water use with the rest of the planet. They've turned an eye on their business practices and are committed to reducing water pollution from textiles. Learn more at patagonia.com. And support comes from Kuat Racks, makers of a better bike rack. Their design team bikes a lot to give you clean lines and well-designed products. You can see their full lineup at kuatracks.com. And support comes from New Belgium, who encourages you to follow your folly. I'm Becca Cajal, signing off for Fitz, and you've been listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. Diaries.